Uh, we have three Bible readings today. Uh, the first one is Job chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the, ni- and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it ever turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included amongst the days among the days of the year, nor it be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. The second is chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with, with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. And the last one is chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Do I have any power to help myself, now that success has been driven from me? Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Thanks, Inika. We made your work tonight. We don't normally have that many readings in one go, uh, but welcome. Uh, we're in the second week in our series in the Book of Job. We're going to try and work our whole way through from chapter 1 to 42. And as I said last week, Rod got us started in chapter 2. In in the first two chapters, we saw in what's called the prologue, Mr. Complete Job is pointed out by God to the Satan specifically because he's blameless and upright. Someone who feared God and shunned evil, said about him a number of times. But the Satan, that is the accuser, makes the accusation that Job only serves and worships God because God has given him so much stuff. And to prove that's not the case, in two devastating tests, or some call them cosmic wages, Job has everything removed from him piece by piece, his wealth, his family, and then finally his health. 
And despite this, he keeps on responding with an extraordinary calm, trust, and ongoing praise of God. The narrator concludes in chapter 2, verse 10, that in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Three of Job's good friends uh, come together in order to go and sympathise and comfort him. Yet when they see the harsh reality of Job's suffering, they're overwhelmed. They rip their robes and they sit on the ground with him, grieving. Now, as we move from chapters 1 and 2 into chapter 3 and onwards, there's, there's no return back to heaven to see what else will happen behind the scenes. Rather, from chapter 3, it begins a series of conversation between Job and his three friends that will take us right through to the end of chapter 31. If you look later in the home group booklet, there's still some booklets out there in the foyer. There's this diagram on page 4 outlining how Job speaks and then his friend Eliphaz speaks. Bildad responds to that and then Job responds again. Then the final friend Zophar speaks and then Job responds again. And it's just this these three cycles of the friends talking to one another and having their say. Tonight we're going to look at just the very beginning of that as Job speaks and then his friend Eliphaz responds, Job responds again. So let's pray and ask that God to help us uh, to understand this passage. Lord God, we do thank you for the book of Job. It's an ancient writing uh, telling a story that some of us are familiar with the start and the beginning, but as we as we delve into these middle sections, as the friends talk to one another or talk at one another, uh, it's a bit murky and we're not really sure what we're supposed to do with the things that are said. Who's right? Has they gone too far as they say that? And so we ask that as we spend some time looking at these chapters, uh, that you would help us not only to understand what was being said, but far more importantly, what you're saying to us through that. Enable us to respond as we need to in repentance and faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I see a show of hands, please? Who here likes birthdays? Anybody? Birthdays? Uh, as kids, many of us eagerly counted down the days until our birthdays arrived. The first thing that my kids still do at the start of each New Year as we get a calendar is to go and circle the, the days that the different birthdays of our family members are on. And I think it's with a similar type of excitement that in chapter one of Job, Job's kids are pictured celebrating their birthdays. It's the reason that they all were together, making it possible for a storm to wipe out all ten kids in one foul swoop. It is no coincidence that celebration, the book of Job, is replaced with mourning. Now, even without such tragedies taking place, other people I know are not so keen on birthdays, particularly as bigger numbers approach. It was my 49th birthday just this last Monday, and my kids are all extremely quick to tell me that half a century is less than a year away now, Dad. Now, I've never been the kind of person that likes throwing parties, even for big birthdays, yet, yet I think that Job is in a league of his own in dislike of birthdays. Job doesn't just wish to ignore his birthday, he wishes that he'd never been born. Rather than his birthday being, being a day circled in the family calendar, Job wishes that his day was ripped out of every calendar in the world. What has happened to the cool, calm and collected Job? Where has this greatest man of the East gone who didn't sin in what he said? No further disasters have 
struck and yet Job now unleashes a, a verbal tirade that at first glance may appear to contradict his declarations of trust and praise that he made back in chapters 1 and 2. Have a look at verse 11. Why didn't I die during birth? If life merely provides the time for me to experience suffering, then why do you give me life at all? Job demands God to answer him. Now to work out how we should think of Job's outburst, remember that these words come after seven days of silent grieving. Job has had plenty of time to think, to consider, to carefully choose his first words. And so while his words are saturated with emotion, don't be too quick to write them off as merely emotions. Job's words are his very raw but reasoned response to the chaos that has descended into his life. The way that he speaks raises this from being a personal disaster into a a far more significant cosmic calamity. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 again. That day, his birthday, may it turn to darkness, May, may God above not care about it, may no light shine on it, may gloom and utter darkness claim it once more, may a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm it. Now, now, some people these days refer to responses like Job's as catastrophizing, exaggerating the severity of events, of being overly sensitive to things that are not quite as bad as you think they are. I think that we are better to see this as showing the reality of someone suffering an unimaginable loss. While it is an ancient writing, I think Job does a better job than a lot of modern writing in its description of how we feel when we suffer. We want others to realise just how much this hurts. For everyone to agree with us that what's happening to us is wrong, it's injustice. Now, while we wouldn't use Job's words to express it, in verse 8, Job calls on the other day curses to join with him in cursing the day of his birth which I think gives us the clue that we need in order to understand this first speech, should be seen as Job's intention to uncreate, an undoing of God's words of blessing in creation, to interpret everything that has happened to him as the undoing of the foundations of life as we know it. In Genesis, God brought order out of chaos by speaking. Whereas in, in Job, let there be light, is reversed by Job's words, may it turn to darkness. We could summarise Job's whole initial speech, chapter 3, as a parody of Genesis 1 and 2. And, and Job saw all that he had experienced, and it was very bad. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completely overturned. Job had no rest and cursed the day of his birth. But is Job catastrophizing? Is he overstating what's happened? Have his emotions gotten the better of him? Has he, in fact, already sinned in what he has now said as he's given vent to his complaint? Well, unlike chapters 1 and 2, there's no heavenly behind-the-scenes insight. In, in those chapters, the narrator helps us to understand more of what is taking place and why. But from here, right through to chapter 38... Job and his friends are left to work this out on their own. 
which leads to the contradictory views that will dominate the next 35 chapters. While each speaker will compete to have the final word, to be able to say that thing that convinces everybody and everyone else will have to stop, everyone has only their experience, observations and handed down wisdom on which to base the arguments that they make. And yet despite the fiercely opposing opinions regarding why Job is suffering, everyone, including Job himself, hold to one truth that isn't self-evident. They all agree with the fundamental fact that God is in control of absolutely everything, what the theologians call God's sovereignty. Notice in chapter 1, verse 16, it is fire of God falling from the sky, not lightning. And, and Job pulls absolutely no punches when he says in chapter 6, verse 4, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Even dreams, something that we would normally assume originate within us, are attributed to God. Now, I know that many will want to tweak or even to correct Job's view here. It's right to notice that back in chapters 1 and 2, God explicitly gave permission to the Satan to do his worst. And, he, and God passed Job into Satan's hands. That's what we looked at in communion. Which leads many to speak of God permitting rather than planning bad things to happen, what is sometimes called God's permissive will. But at the same time that that's true, we also need to notice that God says to the Satan, though you incited me against him without any reason, indicating that Job and his friends are right to perceive that even some bad things come from God. See, absolutely no one in the following chapters will so much as hint that chance or karma or bad luck or even Satan are the explanation for what has happened. The terrible things that happened to Job in some sense come from God. But in what sense? Job and his friends lack our behind-the-scenes view that we got back in chapters 1 and 2, and, and we will rightly draw on more of the Bible to make the connection between a sin-scarred world and the bad things that happen to us. So please don't hear me as suggesting that God is the author of all bad things that happen. When a driver high on drugs runs over a group of kids and kills them, it clearly is a consequence of the driver's sinful choices and actions. Blame the fool that got in his car, not God. But when we get sick with COVID or with cancer, if you lose your job or your best friend, don't automatically assume that God has withdrawn his protection and has handed you over to the whims of Satan. Sometimes God himself leads us into and through the valley of the shadow of evil. There's going to be an item in next week's service uh, and I would encourage everyone to listen in advance for that. We're going to put a post on Facebook, and you can see it on our church's Facebook, um, that reflects on this thought. Um, one of the reasons that bad happens is because God decrees it. Have a listen to that song and see what you think. While God is the master of redeeming bad situations, he doesn't just bring good out of evil, like a, a silver lining to a dark cloud like a superior chess player outmaneuvering Satan, sometimes taking us into a cloud 
will be the best place for us to shine for him. Not, not in spite of the suffering, but in the suffering. It's worthwhile spending some time reflecting on this truth of slowing down and, and reconsidering who was behind all those bad things that came into my life, of not attributing all bad things to Satan and, and only things that we consider good to God. And yet as important as I think that truth is, it must be never used to negate the reality of lived-out suffering. As far as Job is concerned, so much bad has happened to him that life's not worth living anymore, which sounds very similar to what his wife said to him back in chapter 2. Maybe she was just a bit quicker. Now, I think that this introduces one of the most important lessons of the whole of the book of Job, that it is right to be honest about how we feel in the midst of our suffering. It is right, it's essential that we are honest about how we feel in the midst of suffering. It's not, a, it's not a permission to do, this is a requirement to do. Now, some will criticise Job as merely venting, complaining, allowing him to, to be dragged down and just focus on the negative. But his self-described impetuous words are not anti-praise, they're actually God-approved of honesty. And so Job's speeches from chapter 3 onwards should not be seen as his drifting away from the steadfast hope that he expressed at first. As Rod pointed out last week, Job's famous praise of God at the end of chapter 1 actually came after he'd first given expression to his grief. His praise was raised while wearing a ripped robe and with a freshly shaved head. Grief and praise are not opposites. The Bible doesn't tell us to, well, finish off your grieving first, clean yourself up, and then come and praise me. When we get it right, very often, these two are going to be intermingled. And so when your friend or your family member dies, don't try to minimise its impact. When the pain of a broken relationship, a, a harsh word spoken to you, the death of a beloved pet makes you sad. Don't try to hide it or pretend that it doesn't matter. It does matter. And even if you don't give voice to the reality of how you feel, God already knows how you feel and why. As his creator, he's, as our creator, he's plenty big enough to cope with how his creatures react when things don't go as we would like them to. Job's integrity, this truthfulness in the midst of suffering, is going to become one of the major themes of the speeches. When everything inside is crying out in agony, it is not integrity to deny our feelings. It's an attempt to either deceive ourselves, to deceive others, or even possibly to deceive God. So don't downplay or try to deny the impact of the job that you didn't get. The relationship that didn't develop the way you wanted to do. Your child's difficulties at school. And as you honestly express your sadness, depression, frustration and grief, your anger, and also at the same time praise God for the things that you can already praise him for. Suffering and praise may not be our idea of peaches and cream, but according to Job, they do make good partners. And given that the Satan's accusation 
is that Job's praise depends on his getting good from God, maybe it is actually praise in the hard times that is most pleasing to God. Rather than putting on a happy face because we think that's what we're supposed to do as good Christians, maybe acknowledging our sadness and our disappointment in the same song as our gratefulness would be the kind of song that makes God's top ten praise songs. I hope that this is a truth that brings or reinforces a great freedom and privilege that we have as God's people. But there is more than one perspective in the book of Job. And in chapter 4, the first to respond to Job is his good friend, Eliphaz. Just as Job's initial righteous response has been followed by a very emotional one, Likewise, the friend's initial response of silent mourning is followed by an equally emotional response. Eliphaz's very first words acknowledge the danger of speaking too soon, but he's, he's compelled he must speak. I can't hold this in any longer. Job, you've advised people in, in similar circumstances. You need to take your own advice. Look at verses 6 and 7. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? See, Eliphaz wants Job to receive the comfort that Job has given to others. He recalls Job's godly life and how God looks after the godly. And while the narrator doesn't confirm or deny our suspicions, I think that Eliphaz's intentions are probably, almost certainly, motivated by genuine concern for his friend. But unfortunately, whether due to Eliphaz's lack of care or Job's inability to hear what Eliphaz is saying in the midst of his suffering, Job receives what Eliphaz has to say as criticism and judgment. Have a look at chapter 6. Verses 14 to 17 again. Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season in the heat, vanish from their channels. Job acknowledges his despair and therefore his desperate need for faithful friends in the midst of his trial. But Eliphaz's words, rather than bringing together, have increased the distance between them. Now, again, it is right to observe that Eliphaz says a lot of things that are true, and in other circumstances they very possibly would have been an encouragement. Have a look again at chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Chapter 5, verse 7. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. Something that you could put on a, on a poster and stick on your wall. Chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Now those words are picked up by that song that I recommend you listen to. It's a, it's a truth. These statements could all be considered theologically correct. But while Job is floundering in the darkness of suffering, even words intended to encourage achieve the exact opposite. 
which I think leads us to a further lesson that we should be taking from the book of Job. Just how careful we need to be in conversation, whether we are the one suffering or we're coming alongside of somebody is. We need to be incredibly careful when we're suffering and when others are suffering. If you are currently or as you go into suffering, it may be hard, perhaps even bordering on impossible, but try Try your absolute hardest to hear the words behind the words that your friends come alongside you and say. Proverbs chapter 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Is there some truth in what your friend's trying to say? Is there a perspective that, that someone outside of your experience of pain can see that isn't within your grasp because of what you're going through? Don't assume that people are always out to get you. While they may not say it in the ideal way, a a way that you can receive at the moment, is there something valuable in what they're saying? Now, even as I encourage the sufferer to listen, I think the greater responsibility lays on the one who seeks to provide comfort and encouragement. There is a clear danger displayed by Eliphaz to to unintentionally drift from being the sympathiser and comforter into becoming the advisor. Have a look, 5 verse 8. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. Chapter 5 verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. I don't know how he said it. Chapter 5, verse 27. We've examined this and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. Now, I've just made very clear, I hope, that there are times when we do have to say hard things to our friends, but is that the first or the only place that we go? It's a good thing that when we see somebody else in pain that that we long to help them to get out of that pain, to escape from it. But sometimes in our rush to help, with our instinct to try to fix things, we actually make things worse. It's been said that God created us with two ears and one mouth, so we should be listening twice as much as we speak. So even if you have already listened silently to your friend for seven days in their suffering or, or counted to ten before speaking, Eliphaz teaches us that there is always value in listening some more. Whether he meant it or not, all Job hears Eliphaz saying is, if you're good, Job, good things will happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen. God is in control. He's sovereign. He punishes those who do wrong. You're being punished. You must have done something wrong. The natural message, possibly the only message that Job could hear from Eliphaz is, Job, you need to admit your sins and repent. If you do, God will restore you. And what's more, Eliphaz's statements do have a biblical basis. If you read the end of the book of Deuteronomy, It is very clear that God promises to punish his people if they break the covenant. In 2 Samuel, Bathsheba's baby died as a punishment for David's sin. But Job, even though he knows this stuff, is not convinced that this simple formula, action-reaction, describes or explains his situation. 
It's not that Eliphaz is wrong in everything that he says, but Job's experience reveals that there is other things that need to be taken into account. Job's suffering is not the consequence of sin. Chapters 1 and 2 make that absolutely clear. So while the friends have sat with Job for a complete set of days, clearly it hasn't led them to appreciating the full extent of Job's suffering. Job admits that his words have been impetuous, but there's a good reason for that. His suffering is so bad that it's tempting him to give up on God. He wishes that that God would finish him off so that he doesn't say something that he regrets before he dies. Which the positive in that means that Job is still clinging onto God. As all of this stuff is pulling him away, he's still hanging on. Some see Job's questions and statements about God as betraying his lack of faith. I think a close reading reveals that that Job never gives up his belief in a sovereign God. In fact, it's because of this fact that God is in control that makes everything that has happened so hard to accept. If Job was an atheist, he didn't believe that there was a God, then he has no reason to complain. If there's no God, then random things will happen that we can't protect ourselves from. Statistically, bad stuff should happen to good people. Only if there is a good and sovereign God is there any point in even asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And so if you're not a believer here tonight, and one of the reasons that you continue to keep God at arm's length is because there's so much suffering in this world, then I think it's time for you to reconsider. Have a look at the book of Job. It is in light of Job's belief in God's sovereignty that his experiences didn't make sense. While Eliphaz can quote the theoretical, Job is left on his own to deal with the reality, which makes him honestly cry out, God, I don't don't understand how I can keep going. What are you doing to me? I'm under the pump and the pressure's not backing off. It's getting worse. I'm not a stone or made of bronze that I can endure this any longer. Eliphaz hears those words and speaks in an attempt to relieve Job's pain. But before we do like Eliphaz does, before we jump to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, either to comfort ourselves in our suffering or to comfort the friend who is suffering, Are we willing to just sit with the acknowledged pain and just try cry out to God where we're currently at, not where we know he can take us? To just cry out, God, this hurts too much. I can't cope any longer. Please take it away. For me, most recently, this has been done most spectacularly by David Dietz and his wife, Lindley. David's the principal, Smith's Hill, uh, had a bike accident, broke his neck. He's a quadriplegic. And the honesty that these two people have about the pain and the disappointment of David's paralysis, along with their steadfast trust in a God who is in control, is absolutely mind-blowing. I think they exemplify this kind of reaction. Job 2 is clearly an extraordinary example. And yet I think that better than both of these, the Lord Jesus is next level. Though he is God, 
He knows perfectly that everything is going to end well. Nevertheless, he cries out in pain, real pain, sweating drops like blood because of the intensity of his anguish as he faces the cross. Remember that he goes back three times to Peter, James and John looking for someone to share with him in his pain, only to find them all asleep. And as he speaks the truth of his pain and his desire for there to be an easier path, he submits his will to the will of his good father. Please take this cup from me and yet not my will but yours be done. Job's integrity, his honesty in the midst of his suffering, I think is a shadow of the perfect integrity of Jesus. And while Jesus, if you ask him, will give us the merits of his perfect integrity, integrity then becomes a growing attribute of those rescued by his willingness to suffer for us. May we all learn to honestly acknowledge our pain and to listen well to others in their pain. May we learn to praise God in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray now to the one who knows us and has chosen to enter into our suffering that he might fully and finally remove it forever. Let's do it now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not a God at a distance who stays up safely in heaven and just avoids all the trouble and the strife. But you're the God who saw us in our suffering and chose to enter into it. It didn't have all of your stuff taken away, but you willingly chose to give it all away, come and take on flesh, so that you could live a life of suffering and then ultimately die the worst death imaginable, not because you deserved it, but because we deserved it. Thank you so much, Jesus, that your integrity was on full display and you're willing to give us that integrity as a gift. Pray for anyone who's thinking this through, that they would put their trust fully in you. And for us who have trusted for many, many years, help us to keep trusting more and more in more and more ways so that you would be honoured through our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.